Welcome to the Inquisitive Vet Podcast. This is Simon speaking, and today we're going to be talking with Dr. Isadora Sladikovic about avian anesthesia. This is the second part in a two-part series on anesthesia in exotic species. Izzy is a diplomat of the American College of Zoological Medicine, having completed a zoological medicine residency at the University of Georgia. Izzy has lectured widely and has published many peer-reviewed journal articles, particularly in the field of exotic endoscopy. She has also contributed to books, including the third edition of Mater's Reptile and Amphibian Medicine and Surgery. She currently runs the Avian and Exotic Service based at Northside Veterinary Specialist in Sydney. So, without further ado, hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Isadora Sladikovic. Maybe if we could start, how do you assess your anesthetic risk in birds and maybe how does that differ uh, to how you do that in your small mammals? Definitely very, very similar to mammals. I think the biggest difference with birds is that they are even more malnourished (laughs) compared to mammals. So birds are likely to have some pretty significant nutritional problems. They may be chronically deprived of vitamins and protein and calcium. They might be overweight. They might have underlying, especially older birds, they might have underlying cardiovascular disease because they've been on a predominantly seed diet. So they might have huge cholesterols. They might have atherosclerosis. So it's just, I think, you know, they're probably maybe even worse off than mammals. And again, with regards to percentage mortalities, they are again a little bit higher. So they're now reaching kind of like, you know, three to 4% range and then even higher in some of the smaller species. So once you've admitted these patients in into mm-hmm. your clinic, what sort of pre-anesthetic preparations do you do? If I haven't already uh, obtain an accurate weight um, and a physical exam. One of the things that, that I check with birds is I check that their crop is empty. I mean, in most cases it is, but you know, if it's not, if it's full of fluid, I may have to wait a little bit for that crop to empty, or I may need to empty it if it's, you know, if it's full of food. Again, similar to, to mammals, I try and make sure that they are in a stress-free environment. Again, they're in a separate ward and and then just try and make sure that all my prep is done and I didn't mention this in mammals before but I think preparation is absolutely essential and and training nurses to be prepared and to have things ready and to be ready for everything that's going to happen and then for everything that might happen and have all that in place before starting the anesthetic because often if things go wrong with exotics there is there is no luxury of time that and you know there's no time to like run over there to that cupboard so I think just preparation is is really really important. I just wanted to take it back a little bit. If you do find birds that are underweight, Mm -hmm. uh, do you try to get them back to normal weight before you would even attempt the anesthetic? You had time to be able to do that? If they need an anesthetic for some sort of an urgent procedure, it often, like if it's urgent, then that's just a risk that has to be taken. I think oftentimes the risks just have to be communicated with the client. What I do quite often is with birds that are quite debilitated is fluid therapy and nutritional support maybe for 24 hours prior to you know prior to anything invasive is sometimes 
sometimes if, if I have the luxury of that little bit of time or, you know, 48 hours, then I might do that. Okay. I might ask you a little bit later about what sort of fluid therapy and, um, you know, what you get your nurses to do in terms of nutritional sport, uh, nutritional support. But in terms of the examination, do you uh, auscultate the heart? Yes. Yes. I okay. Do. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, full physical, I mean, as a full, obviously as, 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 um, I can do, obviously birds have to be physically restrained in majority of the cases. Although I do try and do as much things as, as I can hands off. And especially with bigger birds, I, I, I try and get clients, especially clients that just, you know, get a new bird. Sorry, I'm going off, off um, track a little bit here, but new clients that just buy a bird, like say, for example, they just get a new the cockatoo or a galah or a collector sparrow, even though any of those large birds, I mean, even with smaller birds like cockatiels, um, young birds, that's the time to get these animals trained and get used to things like auscultation and palpation and trying to teach them to do that without physical restraint, I think is a big plus. I know it's something that we don't do very much, but I try and basically explain to them the importance of that because if we do one day get in a situation where we do need to do that it's going to make things much much easier i think we because we have the the you know we're able to physically restrain these animals because they're so small but the stress of that physical restraint is i think detrimental so um so i try and actually palpate crop keel salome cavity i try put a stethoscope on them so i try and actually do as many of these steps without having to grab them and it's only once i get to a stage where i can i guess i can no longer you know i need to physically grab them do i proceed with that so i think training i think that training for those i guess voluntary behaviors is is maybe the future of how we're gonna treat treat these birds okay and in terms of their you know a lot of them coming in with um stress and things like that how do you get your nurses to mitigate that stress um prior to the anesthetics so what I generally do is, you know, they get placed in the incubators. They are away from the visual stress of dogs and cats. They can't hear any. They can't hear anything. So they're in a quiet ward. The temp, you know, the incubator temperature is set right. And with birds, I am I use midazolam a lot. It is a really good anxiolytic, and I find that. It, I, I find that it helps with bird procedures immensely. It's definitely changed things a lot for me since I started using it. Can I ask what dose you use, and also is it is it an IM injection, and when do you give it prior to the procedure, or how long do you wait before doing a procedure when you're using that? So midazolam, I use in most animal in most birds. I use two mg per kg. It can be given IM, but it also works if it's given intranasally. And I actually use, I use midazolam in consults with clients as well. So I use it in cases where a bird is really, really stressed. And I have, I actually have one cockatoo that absolutely cannot be separated from the client as soon as it's separated from the client it just screeches and it just does not stop so in this bird we have to give him intranasal midazolam with the client present sometimes the client is actually the one that's you know 
putting it in, in, in its nostrils. And then once the thing goes to sleep, we can finally take it out the back. And, and for this bird in particular, we do it for blood collection and for, for radiographs and what, and generally it works pretty quickly. Like within five to 10 minutes, these birds are like their head is down. And without like with those cases where I'm using it on outpatient basis, I then reverse it with flumazenol. So I give them flumazenol and within a few minutes they're, you know, everything is kind of coming back and they can pretty much leave. And as far as the bird's concerned, I hope that the bird does not remember anything. <laughs> they generally leave and, and you know, they, they're fine. They're basically like, what happened? <laughs> Don't know what happened. Yeah. So there's no actual gaseous anesthetic with that. You just It's literally just midazolam when you're doing radiographs and things. Yeah, yeah. So oh, cool. in a lot of cases you can use – you can add butorphanol as well, two mix per kg of butorphanol, and that can kind of add to that sedative effect. And, yeah, in a lot of cases that is sufficient. There are some cases where ISO needs to be given as a top-up, but um, depends on the species, depends on the demeanor of the of the bird. But, yeah, no gas anesthetics, so obviously less exposure to staff, to humans, but with gas, and also a lot less cardiovascular and, and respiratory depression with those with those drugs. So, yeah, I really, um, I really like that combination. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. The butorphanol that you said that you could add in, does that mm-hmm. would that go intranasal as well or does that have to be uh, no, that intramuscular? No, uh, that can be given intranasally as well. Okay, cool. Yeah, it can and all be given intranasally. Is, is it just a matter of spraying it with a syringe or...? <clears throat> so what I've learned <laughs> with this is that I, I use just a syringe and one of the things that's really important with this is not to squirt it quickly. So it has to be literally like dribbled drop by drop. And they're almost like inhaling, like with each breath, they're almost like inhaling it. Sometimes they do sneeze a little bit out at you. And sometimes what needs to happen is they might go to sleep partially and then if they've only received half a dose, I may then give them a top-up dose intramuscularly. But, yeah, it, the fast squirt should not be done. That's when they become quite aversive to the to the process. Okay. Yeah. And back to that incubated temperature, yes. what, what's your normal temperature that you have them at? Of the incubator? Of the incubator. Um, yeah. Usually the incubator is set to anywhere between – Again, depends on the bird and, and what state they're in. Anywhere between, I would say, on average, I would say it's 28 to 30 degrees. Okay, so quite warm. Yeah, yes. yeah it can be like 20, yeah, 26 to 31-ish. Depends on how fluffed up they are. Okay. You know, I mean, that's why birds, when they're sick, they fluff up because they are hypothermic. Um, so uh, just watch the birds. Make sure they don't overheat. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, are there are there any signs besides that fluffing up that people can can watch out for to make sure they're not overheating their bird? So they so they will fluff up if they are cold. Um, oh, sorry. So, I, yeah, yeah. I hyper, <laughs> sorry, I hype hyper, but you meant hypo. Okay. Yeah, yeah, hypo. So they fluff up when they're cold, and generally, if they get too hot they'll go the opposite way in that their feathers will become super smooth. They'll become kind of like slim. Sometimes they may spread their wings out a little bit. They might start panting a little bit. You don't want to get to that stage. And so how do you go about your pre-anesthetic blood testing? 
So if if I'm doing surgeries, if I'm an, if I'm anticipating that I'll be doing surgery on a bird, if it's a big bird, like say for example a chicken, and it's not an urgent procedure, it's always I always do recommend full hematology and biochemistry because uh, it's a big animal, and if I can if I can see whether that chicken has uh, you know any hepatic or renal issues or if it's anemic or if it has profound leukocytosis anything like that can just give me a better picture as to what's going on and then on the other end of the spectrum is those tiny birds like budgies for example and I think the big thing to um, with those animals and this is something that I always communicate to the clients is you know, this bird is 40 grams and this is how much blood it contains and this is how much blood it can lose. And so if we're doing a, a surgery where there is anticipated blood loss, then we're obviously compromising a bird if we're having to take blood for, for it for pre-surgical or pre-anesthetic testing. So that's the conversation that I usually you know, that I have, I try to, at a minimum, do PCV TPP for birds if I, if I can, because uh, especially birds that are chronically, chronically ill, it's amazing how severe disease states birds can be in without showing it. Uh, and so just doing that and seeing if they are profoundly anemic or hypoproteinemic, I think can, can certainly help with both uh, pre-anesthetic stabilization as well as providing just a little bit of a better idea about prognosis with that with that bird. Is there a general rule in terms of the maximum blood volume that you can collect from a bird? Yeah, the recommended amount for blood collection is 1% of body weight. So that doesn't give us very much for a budgie. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, where do you collect the blood um, in both your small birds and so your larger birds as well with the chickens? So with most of the parrots, I collect from the right jugular vein. And for uh, birds like chickens or any poultry, ducks, I collect from the medial metatarsal vein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I find that that vein really good for chickens as well. Like, yes, it's, it's just so much easier. <laughs> yes, and that that vein I actually use for IV catheter placement in all animals, including parrots, when they're going on. Like if if I'm having them on IV fluids or or receiving um, IV fluids, the medial metatarsal I think is the best one, and it's the best one to maintain as well. Okay, so you don't use the um, the ulnar vein. Uh, I don't. I don't. Okay. I find I I find the ulnar vein really fiddly and securing uh, securing it is is a real pain. Mm. So I can I can place. I mean the the smallest the smallest bird that I've had a IV catheter in in the medial tarsal vein was a cockatiel. So they can yeah you can get pretty small with that vein. It's a it's a good one and it's it's easier to actually tie and <laughs> for it to stay in place. Much better than the wing in my experience. Cool. Now, what is the anesthetic protocol that you use for your, uh, I guess, more invasive procedures? 
So usually I use that same pre-med, so midazolam, butorphanol, two mix per kg of each. And and the reason we do we use butorphanol in most birds is because that opioid is the one that's been shown to to have analgesic properties, presumably because of their predominant kappa receptors in their CNS. So they get sedated with that, and then they're yeah they're pretty sleepy with that. So then I just mask them down. I just give them a little bit of ISO, and then I intubate them. And then they pretty much always get, so pretty much all my bird patients get put on a ventilator straight away, regardless of whether they're breathing or not. And just, yeah, get maintained on ISO and, you know, similar to mammals, I I do local blocks as as much as I can. What drugs do you use for your local blocks? Uh, Bupivacaine. It's a little bit tricky with birds because we don't have as much information on whether it's effective or not, but but I use it. <laughs> so, yeah. Is it at the same dose as your small mammals? Yes. Okay. Yes. So my next question was, what sort of ET tubes do you use for birds? For most like medium to large birds, I use those cold tubes. I'm not sure if that's what they're call- called elsewhere in the world, but they're the ones that have like a narrower distal portion basically. So where the diameter changes to a wider portion, that's where it kind of sits on the glottis and that's where it kind of creates a seal, I guess. Um, so they're not cuffed or anything, never cuff, never place cuff tubes, never blow up a cuff in a bird. They have complete tracheal rings. Yeah. So cold tubes and then the smallest, like if the smallest cold tube is, is uh, you know, still too big. So for very, very small birds like cockatiels, I would just use trimmed IV catheters. So like 14 or 16 gauge catheters. Uh, in terms of uh, the ventilator as well, do you mind yes. telling me what ventilator you use or what you like to use? Yeah, so I, I use the Vitronic ventilator, the one from from the UK, I believe. And I really love it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really, really easy to use. It's designed for these small animals. It is a, a pressure cycle ventilator, so not volume. It's a pressure cycle ventilator. And that's important to know just because because it works on pressure and some of these small animals, they can build up secretions around the, the tip of these very, very small ET tubes. And sometimes that can actually fool the ventilator into thinking that it's giving breaths. And that's kind of like, I guess, the only downside to it, but that's pretty easy to to visually detect. But yeah, the Vitronic ventilator, it's really easy to use. And I have found it for birds and reptiles as well incredibly useful and it means that these animals just stay in you know they're much more stable it frees up the nurse to to you know monitor the animal more completely so i i really like it can i ask what rate you actually in terms of ventilation or respiratory rate how do you work out what that rate of uh, ventilation is i mean is it is it based on what they're doing consciously or is there a set rule that you use or uh, I, I have some guidelines. So if birds, uh, so basically, I mean, the thing with birds is just like reptiles, they don't have a diaphragm. So birds will hypoventilate under anesthesia, but just by definition, just because of their anatomy. So if a bird is still breathing spontaneously, if I see that it's actually still breathing, then I will put it on a relatively low rate of about four to six breaths a minute. So in addition to its normal respiration, I will add on the ventilator to give about four breaths a minute. If the bird is completely apneic, then I'll 
increase that to, to about 10 to 12 breaths per minute. And the thing that's going to help me decide at what uh, what rate I'm ventilating these birds at is going to be determined by my end tidal CO2. So I, you know, my end tidal CO2 is pretty much always attached and that should be reading, you know, 30 to 45. And so I basically tweak it so that it is ventilating and maintaining the CO2 at that, in that range. Okay. Now that's, that's really useful. For those people who don't have uh, ventilators, because I know that they can mm-hmm. be quite expensive. Yeah. Is manual intermittent positive pressure ventilation possible, or do you just run the risk of causing damage? Manual ventilation can certainly be done. Obviously, the smaller the animal, the more delicate you have to be. You have to make sure that you have a circuit that has very, very small bags. And I do actually have a circuit, the Avian Mapleson circuit, um, which has a tiny little bag. I think the main issue with manual ventilation with birds is because they will hyperventilate pretty much throughout. I think the main issue is more the staffing and the fact that if you just have one dedicated nurse, then that nurse should pretty much be glued to that to that bag and isn't really able to do much else and should really be breathing breathing for that bird pretty um, pretty consistently throughout the anesthetic. Sure. Yeah. And now, what sort of um, monitoring equipment do you like to use on birds? I do like the capnograph. And if you are using a capnograph, make sure that it does have a pediatric adapter because you're adding dead space to it, especially with the mainstream one, which is one that I like to use. The other thing that I that I really like is the Doppler. So again, I like hearing that real sound. And I place the Doppler over the ulna artery. And so that's really reliable. Pulse socks are not particularly reliable. I still use them, but because birds have like different different hemoglobin, um, it's 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 just not as re- the trend may potentially be useful, but I certainly don't rely on it. And having a nurse watching the respiration is important. Again, like even with the ventilator, if that ventilator, if that tube has blocked that that I, I do want my nurse to be watching that breathing and, and the temperature. Now, if the tube does block, what happens then? Uh, so a few different things, I guess, can happen. If the tube does block, it really depends on the situation. It depends on whether I'm in, um, if I'm sterile and I'm inside a bird, obviously it's, it's you know, it can be a little bit tricky. If it's possible to get a second nurse to just help and just, remove that ET tube and stick that cotton tip in there, try and remove any of that excess mucus secretions and just place a new tube. I pretty much always have extra tubes following that bird around for that reason. The The other thing that may sometimes need to happen is basically just putting more pressure so just temporarily, just for a couple of breaths, just increasing the pressure on that ventilator, just so that that ventilator can just blow through that, you know, mucus plug or whatever it is. That can work in some cases. And obviously, if, you know, if the animal is crashing and, and you know, the, the respiration is, you know, a obviously a big problem, then I, yes, I will sometimes, you know, there's just no staffing, then yes, of course, I will just go and help and then re, re-glove, re-scrub if needed. Okay. And this, this one might be a stupid question, but how do you attach your Doppler to the ulna artery? So what I do is if you get two paddle pop sticks, 
um, tongue, tongue depressors, however you refer to them, just get two of them. And at one end, just get some tape and tie those two paddle pop sticks together. And then what you're left with is almost like a little grasping, like a little grasping, I guess, sort of setup. So what I do then is I just slide that on either side of the wing and the Doppler probe, and that kind of holds it in place. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense. Okay. Um, <laughs> and in terms of measuring your temperatures, do you just use those rectal probes, uh, particularly in your small, smaller birds? How do you measure yeah, that temperature? I mean, Smaller birds can certainly be problematic. I mean, budgies and cockatiels, it's just not possible sometimes in those animals. So there's a few, uh, I guess, things to consider with with regards to birds and, um, and temperature. Firstly, cloacal temperature can actually underestimate because it's the cloaca, it's not the rectum. So it can actually underestimate. If I have a bigger bird that is intubated, the most re- reliable thing is to actually pass a um, esophageal, esophageal thermometer down. That can be a little bit difficult again because of the crop, but if I can get it down there, then that's generally generally the best thing. But yeah, birds are certainly more challenging to monitor their temperatures than than mammals are. But yeah, those are just some some ways to to do it and of course just focusing on thermal support on actually providing thermal support what um thermal support do you use in birds is it similar to your small um, animals? it is similar so i i use bear huggers bear huggers are actually very very effective um and sometimes i use heat lamps as well just to but just making sure that obviously there's no burns but yeah th- those are the main things bear huggers and heat lamps Okay, and is there a? I don't know if there is actually a temperature setting on your bear hugger that you can select, or whether it's just the one setting. Um, Generally, yeah, we have one that has um, different temperatures. I generally, when they're, I mean, when they're under anaesthetic, I generally have to have them on the highest one, pretty much throughout. Okay. Yeah. What does your one have different settings? Or the one I don't have one. The last clinic I worked at, an exotic clinic, they actually didn't have a bear hugger. It was one of the few things we didn't have, actually. But yeah. um, I think it was just a you know a financial thing more than anything. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think hair dryers are really, really good. And sometimes you may just need to like – sometimes you just like create a bear hugger, like just get like – pillows and uh, sorry not pillows towels and pillowcases and just blow hot air into them and make your own bear hugger yeah all these like different ways of just trying to adapt around it yeah just macgyver macgyver <laughs> medicine that's basically what exotics is <laughs> oh, God. now i did want to ask about analgesia i know that you just yes. told us that uh butorphanol uh, is, is something that you like to use do you use some of the non-steroidals as well Yes, so I use meloxicam pretty commonly in in birds. So uh, meloxicam again, one mg per kg, up to one and a half mg per kg of meloxicam. Um, but yeah, one one mg per kg in majority of the cases, um, and usually give that on recovery. Uh, so that's probably my most common non-steroidal that I use meloxicam. Was it once a day as well, or do you sort of twice a day? It? Just to clarify, it is a divided dose of that on um, one milligram per kilo. 
So half the so milligram one, per kilo. One milligram. So no, it's 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 one milligram per kilo twice a day. Oh, okay. No, that's yeah. good. I clarified that. Yes. Yes. And in terms of your fluid therapy, um, you said yep. that you will normally put a intravenous catheter in there. Mm-hmm. What's the fluid rate, and what fluids do you like using? With birds, you can go a little bit higher, um, so anywhere between 10 and 20. Again, depending on what state they're in, depending on the blood loss they're experiencing, so 10 to 20 mils per kilo per hour. Hartman's is fine, again, unless there is other issues. I think the biggest issue with birds is going to be blood loss or anemia and hypoproteinemia. So I think in birds is where I've resorted to blood transfusions more so than than any other animals. Um, I know it's a little bit of a uh, issue getting blood, but if it's if it's one of those situations where the animal needs it, and and if we're in a lucky situation where the owner happens to have another bird at home, then that usually ends up being the most common most common donor. And just to go back with your just with your comment with with IV catheters, birds are probably the most common animal where I would place intraosseous catheters as well, especially in those cases where I can't get get an IV if it's a very small bird, and and I absolutely need that intravenous access. Where do you normally get intraosseous access? I usually go in the ulna or the tibia tarsus, but yeah, usually the ulna I find uh, pretty easy. That's the easiest one. Okay. And just one quick question. I didn't want to go off too much of a tangent with the blood transfusions, but do you have to cross-match at all? Or I guess in that sort of situation, is it sort of we've got to give something and just yeah, yeah. Hope, hopefully it will um, work? Yeah. So I, I don't, I usually don't cross match. I mean, there are publications and I have pl- uh, loads of personal experience where blood transfusions from different species are being given. I mean, I've had cases where I've had to give a parrot a blood from a hawk and there are published cases where I believe cockatiels receiving blood from pigeons or turkeys or something like that. And there doesn't seem to be issue with reactions. What there does seem to happen is that the lifespan of those red blood cells seems to be shorter if it's if it's a unrelated species. In terms of, and I, and I know that you sort of talked about a little bit about complications and things that you see in birds. Are mm-hmm. there any big ones that vets should be watching out for? Uh, I know that you said that, you know, being anemic and hypoproteinemic mm-hmm. is, a, is one of them, but are there any others that, you know, are really important that you find, uh, you know, vets need to make sure that they're watching? You mean, are you talking about um, anesthetic complications, like intraop complications? So I think the biggest intraoperative complications and I think the biggest reasons we lose birds under anesthesia, I think, are hypoventilation and apnea or just chronic hyperventilation that just leads to, uh, you know, sequelae of problems and hypothermia that isn't mm-hmm. isn't um, addressed in time. I, I think those things become life-threatening very, very quickly in birds. So I think that's that's the two big things. Okay. And in terms of your emergency drugs and your crash mm-hmm. cart, what do you like to have on hand? Oh, birds are very difficult. They probably have one of the lowest success rates of once they have complications. It's very once they once they arrest, it's incredibly difficult to bring them back. I, I think it's like close to zero percent, or maybe it is zero percent. Oh, really? 
So I do like to have uh, I do like to have adrenaline nearby, but I think the the, the the biggest thing with birds is going to be that ventilation. So I think having extra ET tubes and just having those, uh, you know, cotton tips and whatever, if you need to swab out that mouth, if there is low, because they do have a lot of mucus secretions, they can get a lot of mucus secretions that can, that can block their trachea and just being able to quickly swab that out and reintubate and ventilate, I think are probably the most useful things. Thanks for that. Uh, I did have just a couple of specific situations that I wanted to ask you about if we have time. Okay. One of them was in short procedures like a big trim, do you anesthetize them first? And then also, if they are anesthetized, do you intubate at all? Or in those short procedures, is it just a matter of they're just on the mask and then go from there? If they're having a very short procedure and it's something that can be done under sedation, then I would just go with the midazolam-butorphanol combo and and just keep it at that if that's enough. And with reg- and then if I do have to use isoflurane to top them up to do a short procedure, generally if they are going if the procedure is going to be less than about 15 minutes, then usually mask maintenance is acceptable. And then anything that is going to be longer than about 15 minutes, I will intubate and ventilate. And the other specific question I had was, if you have a bird that has a suspected tracheal obstruction, or if you plan to do a tracheal endoscopy, how does your anesthetic approach change? And if you decide to use air sac tubes or place one, how does that affect your anesthetic and your decisions? I think the biggest thing is is getting that tube in and getting it in the right place and then and then connecting it uh, basically so yeah not too different you know I think the, the biggest thing there is is just getting the prep done so that once that animal is sedated and goes down that that air sac tube can just be placed you know very swiftly and very quickly and then you know switched over and connected to that and then everything can continue as before. Okay, so it's just a matter of just working very quickly. Just, be, just being very, yeah, just being quick and just knowing where those landmarks for that caudal thoracic air sac, which is where that's my preferred one, and I go behind the limb. So the same, the same approach that I use for celioscopy, that's where the air sac catheter goes. Fair enough. Now, my next question is not really a question, but more just wanting to know what your opinion was in terms of anesthetic times and what you considered safe uh, and not safe. So, yeah, so this is, you know, this is a big kind of discussion point because there is definitely a lot of that, you know, with with birds, especially of like, you know, you have the golden hour or like (laughs) the golden like 30 minutes. And then after those 30 minutes, your anesthetic mortality, uh, you know, risk increases. And, and I, I don't, I don't believe that, that it's so it's, I don't believe that it's the time. I think the critical, I think that the important thing there is how well those birds are supported when they are asleep. So, you know, these birds, I mean, birds, they have high metabolic rate. They don't have a diaphragm. They will become hypothermic quickly. They will hyperventilate. They will start hyperventilating and they will gradually, you know, you know, their respiration will get depressed as, as, as the anesthetic goes on. And, 
we're basically taking these animals with this sort of physiology and we are just disabling all their all their natural uh, ability to to maintain that homeostasis so so i don't think it's so much that the time i think it's more what we do during that time and how well we are supporting those those animals and certainly i I do try and make sure that my anesthetics are as short as possible. I also try and make sure that I prepare for everything that I will need and everything that could potentially go wrong that I can think of beforehand, just so I can act on anything's going wrong during that procedure. But I mean, during my residency where I was in an academic institution and we had all the belt, you know, all bells and whistles that you can potentially think of, um, you know, a, a bird, a small bird, like a, a 200 gram bird could be under anesthesia for two hours, three hours and, and be just fine because it's, it's just basically all its systems are, you know, it's basically on life support essentially. So all its system are, uh, systems are being supported as best as possible. So I think that is, is probably the biggest issue. I think we need to be mindful of what it is that we are changing in this animal's physiology when we're putting it under anesthesia and how we can support it while it's essentially disabled if that makes sense no it does um that's really interesting as well that yeah just to give us that perspective of you know how long you you know given the right circumstances and situations how long you can have safe anesthetics for yeah but you yes. know be prepared be swift yes uh, you know have everything ready and just try and be efficient and try and prepare for complications you know as best as possible thanks for that I did want to segue now, and I, we're sure. nearly wrapping up. Uh, we've, gone, we've gone pretty far, so for all those that have, you know, kept listening, that's re- it's really good. I think we're, <laughs> we're actually covering a lot of things though, because I, I actually are. find this really interesting. Um, sort of like getting everything hundred times faster than normal. So, <laughs> but the last few questions that I have, which I ask every one of the people that I interview, the first one is: What book do you most recommend vets to read? One book. Is this for exotics? No, this is in. This is, can be anything. It doesn't even have to be a vet book as well. I'm just going to have to pick an exotics book, I think, because that's where my mind is at at the moment. And I think the book that I keep on recommending more, like more than I think any other book to general practitioners, to emergency vets, to uh, to new grads, is the is the exotic animal formulary. <laughs> I think that's probably. The James Carpenter Exotic Animal Formulary. I think that is a very important book to have and uh, make sure it's the right edition because exotic stuff changes so quickly. And if you have the old edition, it's probably outdated. But yeah, I, th- I think that's that book can be really helpful to just have that very quick access to, you know, what's the normal PCV in a rabbit or, you know, what is the dose of meloxicam in a bird? You know, it just has has all the vital information. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's a great book. That's just one yeah. of those books that you have to have around um, yeah. all the time. Um, now, my next question is, if you could travel back in time and give one piece of advice to yourself when you were a recent graduate, what would it be and why? I think the biggest piece of advice that I would give to myself is to have a little bit more work-life balance. <laughs> and... I I think that, you know, as vets in general, we're probably, uh, you know, we're perfectionist, we are driven and motivated, and we definitely, you know, 
this this career choice almost is a bit of a lifestyle and and i think we're becoming more and more aware of the negative effects of that and you know the mental health effects of that and we're becoming more aware of how much you know vets are potentially suffering in silence with things like work related stress and depression and anxiety and all those sorts of things and so i think that um you know as a as a recent grad as a new grad i certainly did not even think about those things and and i think what i've learned probably over the years is just to to look after myself and you know both physically and mentally because we are in a healthcare uh, industry. And I think for us to be able to provide care to others, in this case, animals, we have to know how to look after ourselves as well. And also just to, to be compassionate both to ourselves and to our colleagues and to our friends and family. So I think those, those things are, yeah, that's what I would tell myself, <laughs> my younger self. I think that's, that's great. And I must say that of the people I've asked that question, that usually comes up, and I. Oh, I know, really? I know, and initially I was a little bit surprised because a lot of um, the people I'm asking us, you know, some of the hardest workers, type A sort of people. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's a good thing that uh, that is something um, that we certainly need to be aware of, and I and I certainly think a, a lot more people are talking about it, which is a good yeah. thing. Yes, um, for sure. Now, my last question is just if people are interested. Uh, how can they find out more about you? Well, I run an avian exotics service out of the local referral hospital near me, and I I basically set up the service myself. So I do have my own website, so it has a little bit of information there. It also has my contact details for anyone wishing to contact me with any questions, queries about exotics. Would you be able to just tell us now what your website is or the URL? Yeah, so it's avesvet.com.au, so A-V-E-S-vet.com.au. Great. No, thanks for that. And I want to thank you for being able to take the time to be able to talk to us today. Um, it was really interesting. I certainly learned you know, a lot more about how I should be doing my anesthetics. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. No, you're very welcome. Hi, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I just have a few things to say. Firstly, if you like the podcast, please spend a couple of minutes to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really means a lot and it will help us get the podcast out there. Also, if you have any feedback or any recommendations on how we can improve it, or if you know any potential guest speakers who you think would be great on the podcast, please email me at contact at inquisitivevet.com. I also need to quickly go through our disclaimer with you. The Inquisitive Vet Podcast is brought to you by Bar Vets Proprietary Limited. Our podcast publication is for general information purposes only and do not take into account your specific needs, objectives or circumstances. Content is based on the professional opinions of individual doctors and other healthcare professionals who have contributed their content. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests or contributors and are not necessarily those of Bar Vets. Barvets is not responsible for errors or for opinions expressed in this podcast. 
By listening and downloading our podcast, you agree not to use our content as medical device to treat any medical condition in animals, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Barvets expressly disclaim any warranties or guarantees expressed or implied and shall not be liable for damages of any kind in connection with the material, information, techniques or procedures set forth in this podcast. This disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll see you later. Bye.